Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Saturday, uh, January the 6th, 2024. We've done a lot of shows over the years, particularly in 2023 on TikTok, which seems to be transforming the world, one with uh, the the tech historian Chris Stokel Walker has written an excellent book on the history of TikTok. Another with the writer, an older man, Lloyd Devereaux Richards, on how he was discovered through his daughter on TikTok. But today we're pursuing the TikTok theme with an interesting angle. My guest, uh, Dr. Annie Zimmerman, is both uh, a psychotherapist and a TikTok personality. Uh, quite sure how she combines those two. And she has a new book out, Your Pocket Therapist, Break Free from Old Patterns and Transform Your Life. It's a book which is premised on her both as a, uh, a, a, a psychotherapist uh, as well as a TikTok uh, personality. And she's joining us from Hackney in Northeast London. Um, Annie, what's the connection between TikTok uh, you as a personality and you're as a psychotherapist, uh, you have a, a huge following on, on TikTok, uh, 354,000 followers. Uh, you're only following 14 people, which is um, uh, rather odd. And then you have almost 10 million likes. How are all this, How's all this connected? Um, it's a good question. I think that Therapy has previously been something that is really kept behind closed doors. You only really know um, know it if you've gone through therapy yourself. But we're seeing a movement, I think, on Instagram, on TikTok, of young people really wanting to learn about psychology and themselves and relationships and what people would otherwise learn in the therapy room. People are now getting that information online. Um, of course, TikTok and Instagram is not a... A replacement for therapy. Therapy is a process that requires you to engage and I don't think you get that same engagement um, and that same level of depth from just consuming a video but I do think that educating yourself um, into why you are how you are, why you act how you act, how other people act, personality types, patterns is really important and so I wanted to take insights people were learning in therapy and, and um, share them online to people um, I think especially Instagram and TikTok can often be a place for a lot of kind of like motivational quotes and positivity. But actually, I wasn't seeing a lot of the depth that I was learning about um, in psychotherapy training. So I wanted to bring some of that nuance and complexity and depth um, into social media, because I think young people like now more than ever are really craving that depth and really wanting to understand themselves in a deep way. Are you describing this then as the democratization of therapy you're suggesting that you're pulling the walls down revealing uh revealing what's behind the curtain telling the truth which is of course in a sense i guess what therapy has always been about yeah i think uh, therapy is about telling the truth about yourself which most of us aren't even aware of and are in complete denial about and it takes really reflecting often with another person um, challenging you and helping you to see things that you can't already see, like those blind spots, um, to learn the real truth about yourself. That is how we get to know ourselves and grow and confront our demons. Um, I, I think there's a place for social media in doing that. I don't think you can do the full work 
you know, alone in a room on a screen. I think it requires being present with somebody else. But I also think that people are really wanting to reflect about themselves. And if you can start to do that in your room through, you know, a video that's made you think about something or made get given you an idea about how to think about your life and made you think, oh, actually, maybe, you know, my childhood impacted me and let's think about how that might be. And you're on the right step to growing and to, to understanding your own truth about yourself. So I think, yeah. Lots of criticism over the years about the, the power dynamics of uh, psychotherapy, a lot of critique of the old Freudian notion of a man having somebody on a couch and, and, and having all the power and them telling and revealing everything about themselves. Your notion of TikTok uh, as a more democratizing sphere is interesting, but I wonder how you balance that with, as I said, your reality as a, a, a TikTok personality, whatever that means. You're only following 14 people and you have 354,000 followers. Aren't you just falling into that old trap of the all-powerful therapist um, not really opening yourself up? Why are you only following 14 people on, 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 on TikTok? Um. I, it's a good question. I probably use Instagram more to follow people and TikTok more just to kind of scroll. I definitely am a user of it myself, so I don't think of it as that power imbalance where I'm just posting and not consuming. I actually gain a lot from it. I think we we talk about TikTok and social media as this really um, demonized thing, right? Like it's, you know, kids aren't leaving their house and everyone's addicted and absolutely there's a place for criticism and to, to rethink how we use social media. However, I will say there's a, so much information, whether it's just for entertainment or for interest or intellectual stimulation that's out there. And I think there is a lot to gain. Um, in terms of the all powerful therapist, I mean, you'll see from my videos that I don't really share a lot about myself online. Um, I try to just keep it more about the information that I'm sharing rather than about myself to protect um, my anonymity as a therapist. So um, there is still, I've got a picture of Freud right here. I'm sure um, he would Hello. like well, I'm sure Freud's a rather popular fellow in, uh, in Hackney. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of course he lived in London. Um, a lot of people, uh, Annie, and you don't need me to tell you this, have described the younger generation, Generation Z, as the therapy generation. Has something gone on, particularly in the COVID years, about making therapy more and more central, for better or worse, in people's lives? Is that one of the reasons why you're such a hit on Instagram and, and TikTok, why you've written this book, uh, and why the language of therapy has become so mainstream? Yeah, I think people, I think the stigma is really reduced, you know, like my parents' generation, there's such a shame and a taboo about even having a mental health and thinking about it and talking to someone that I think has been really worked on and lifted over the years um, to the point where, yeah, Gen Zs are engaging in therapy and even using, you know, therapy and therapy language as like a, a badge of honour, uh, which has its own criticisms when, you know, that kind of therapy speakers used to manipulate people or get what you want or you know get a kind of empathy so I think it needs to be handled really delicately but I will say that just from my experience of different generations that younger people are much more able to talk about how they feel um to their friend you know especially with men like you hear younger men talking to their friends thinking oh I'm really anxious today and then like you know you, don't, you just don't hear that in the older generations there's much more of a taboo about having to especially in England you know this stiff upper lip 
Um, and I think that is really shifting in young people. Uh, and that comes with its own issues, but it is, I think, uh, good to see uh, people not being ashamed for having feelings and for having trauma and for being vulnerable. That may be true. Um, you probably know this better than I do, but at the same time, we have the rise of other social media influencers uh, like mm -hmm. Andrew Tate. There was a piece about him in The Guardian about why his own particular form of, sort of violent misogyny uh, appeals to, to younger men. So mm -hmm. we, we, it seems as if we have two things going on at the same time, men perhaps who want to share their feelings and men who want to beat up women. Are these two things connected, young men? I think I think it's. A, I mean, I can't really speak as a man, but I do think it's a tricky time. To well, be you talk to a lot of men, and you're a therapist. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a hard time to be a man. I think men are they're encouraged to be more effeminate, to be more communicative, to be in touch with their feelings, to go to therapy, to be vulnerable, and at the same time, they're shamed for being masculine. And I think um, I think that's why a lot of people are going towards Andrew Tate as a kind of backlash towards that, um, and this kind of. Um, you know, glamorization of his life and wanting the money and the fame and everything that he's promising. Um, I would say that uh, that people who go to therapy, there's a lot of men out there who are going to therapy for the wrong reasons, I think, and are, are doing it to more align with a kind of victim mindset of how awful everything is for me, rather than actually confronting their own shadows and the ways that they hurt other people. So therapy isn't just a blanket answer for everyone. There's plenty of people in therapy who, um, aren't actually able to recognize the ways in which they're causing harm to other people, you know. Uh, I would say Andrew Tate is probably one of those men. We're speaking with Dr. Annie Zimmerman, uh, the Hackney-based author of Your Pocket Theorist, a big hit, uh, or she is a big hit on, um, uh, on TikTok. Um, Annie, your book sold as a, as a preempt, um, book people know that that's a an impressive feat um and it was presented uh because of your big hit uh, on the bookseller because of your big hit uh because of your following on tiktok i'm guessing you might have struggled to sell the book had you not had a tiktok account um how does that affect the writing of a book i mean you're a therapist you're a tiktok personality and now you're a published author is the writing of the book different and the experience of writing a book, is it different from being both uh, a psychotherapist and a TikTok personality? Yeah, well, I, I wouldn't have written the book if it wasn't for the TikTok. I, in a way, I was surprised. No one would have paid you. I don't, you could have written it, but I don't think you would have got a preempt. No, well, I was surprised, I think, when I started posting about just how well it was doing. And I, I realized there was you know, you think it's really saturated, but actually there was a real niche of people wanting to engage with themselves, not just on the superficial level, but like on a really deep level, really thinking about their childhood and their relationship patterns and their unconscious. And um, I wanted to take the kind of bite size, easy, pithy, you know, 30 second format and put it into a book. So even though, um, you know, it's a book, it's split up into different chapters with lots of tips and tricks and exercises and it's still got that like bite-sized pockety feel so that you can pick it up and it, it's not like an academic text 
I'm very anti-academia. <laughs> I think it's really exclusive and it alienates lots of people. I want this to be as commercial as possible in the way that anyone can pick it up and engage with their mental health and that it can resonate. So I've tried to take out all of the jargon, all of the like the the barriers to understanding it, but still keep the depth and the nuance and the complexity. Um, so it's really short chapters. It, I guess it's like Instagram, TikTok friendly, um, but still has the knowledge and the the stimulation that people are wanting um, to to reflect and to grow. Did you write the book in your, uh, if not on your couch, on your chair mm -hmm. in your psychotherapist room in East London? I know you work out of your house. Yeah, I wrote the whole thing with my dog on my lap. <laughs> so oh, you did? My co-author. I hope yeah. you didn't write it on your iPhone. No, no, that's too far. But what what was... I mean, you, you, you've got Substack posts, you do a lot of online stuff, but what was the experience of writing a book? What did you learn personally about your own? I know you don't always want to reveal everything about yourself, but in terms of your own personal growth, how, what, what did yeah. writing a book teach you? Well, in the book, I actually get really vulnerable about my own experience of therapy and how therapy has completely changed my life and, and my motivations for becoming a therapist and then um, sharing online about therapy. So I think it was a really good experience for me as you say to not just be in the position of power where you're not revealing anything about yourself and step back and actually put my heart into the book um, it's not a book about me but it's definitely informed by my experiences so I think it really challenged me to be open and to be vulnerable which um, is something that, that I have to consider um, carefully as a, as a therapist but um, I do think it's really important to be able to resonate with other people's stories to hear about their own journeys and their own selves um so that was one thing and then the other thing was just respect for people who write books really it's quite a grueling process that you really have to question yourself and and that imposter syndrome of like do I have anything new to say because all I'm doing is taking theories that people like Freud and many other people have already come up with um but it's I guess the art is in distilling that into a way that people can actually understand it and engage with it and it's easy to understand is the challenge so um yeah it's definitely a, a process of really questioning yourself and going through all of those um periods of self-doubt and then pushing through and uh, believing that you you can and should write we don't want to give away all the all the secrets in the book your pocket therapist we want people to read it but uh, i know you grew up in watford was that uh, um was that a traumatic experience? <laughs> I think growing up in the what suburbs. Was, uh, people listening, by the way, uh, who, who aren't from North London, Watford is like some of the other satellite towns of London is, is a little bit of a joke. It is. Yeah, I think suburbia is always traumatic in some way. Um, you're always just on the outside of the city, just looking in. Um, it's It can be quite quiet. You live quite far from your friends. But actually, no, I had a, a really good experience there. Um, and so so what do you write about in the book about your parents and your upbringing and your own experience with therapy? Um, so I don't write too much about my parents, um, but I write about my own struggles with therapy and going having eating disorders and um, how therapy completely transformed them and made me realise, it basically made me realise that most of the reason why people suffer is absolutely nothing to do with the symptom and everything to do with what what is it's being used to cope with. Um, I think we can get really bogged down, whether it's like anxiety, depression, 
addiction, eating disorder, relationship problems with the, the problem as it presents. But often, actually, it's something that is in our unconscious that we're not able to be aware of, something we're repressing and not feeling, um, some trauma or anything that's happened in your life that you have learned that coping mechanism to deal with. Um, and I think that was really transformational to me. Um, and something that I really want to explain to other people who are struggling with things that rather than trying to like fix your anxiety or you know work out exactly how you should be eating or um you know, getting fixated with the problem it's about kind of peeling back the layers and getting really underneath to to try to explore what's going on lack of therapy some people uh, Annie and I'm sure again you're very familiar with this are, are critical of the idea of peeling back the layers they actually would argue that it reflects a, a disengagement with the world, this retreat into the self, this obsession with feeling mm. and experience. And it, it, it represents particularly a retreat from, from politics, from engagement, from society. Is there any truth to that criticism, do you think, of our, not so much of your work or of your book, but of our increasingly therapeutic culture and society? Yeah, I guess it's symptomatic of an individualistic society where we're living less in community and thinking, kind of more narcissistically about ourselves um but I would say that that self-awareness is the key to connecting with others if that's a struggle it's the key to engaging with the world is to understand who you are how you think and then how you relate to others how you relate to politics how you relate to whatever it might be um I think being too navel gazing and too inward focusing can absolutely switch you off from the world but if it's done in a way where you're actually confronting your shadow and the parts of yourself that you're maybe not so proud of or ashamed of or hiding, um, that actually just makes you more whole and then therefore makes your experience of the world more whole. So I think the two can go hand in hand. Max Weber in uh, the German soci 19th, early 20th century German sociologist famously wrote in Protestant ethic that um, modernity and the Reformation transformed the monastery into the world and um, capitalism became a kind of monastic thing where everyone was seeking redemption, alienation, existential mm. grief through capitalism. I wonder if the same thing has happened now with Freud and therapy and the world itself has become one big uh, therapist's room. When I walk around, when I see what my kids, particularly my daughter, how they talk and what they talk about, it seems as if the whole world is one big form of therapy is there any truth to that or am i just an old phone have you gone to therapy no of course not <laughs> so, do, I, do yeah. I do i have all the makings of someone who should be uh uh on your couch i would say and i, I don't uh i don't want to put words in your mouth so we can think about it but i would say that that might be a perspective of um of the older generation certainly my parents generation who how old uh, are your parents mom, they're in their early season. My mum is a therapist, so yeah. I think this applies to her, but oh, she there's, is? There's, there's a in fear Watford? of uh, in London, central London. But there, oh. there's a fear of therapy as of it being threatening and scary and something that is um, you know, challenging the status quo and why should we look inward? What might we find? And I think that perspective can be kind of offensive and coming from a fear-based place of the unknown, rather than seeing it as something that can be expansive you know, and, and actually lead to positive change. But can fear be a good thing? Um, 
it, it can, I guess fear shows us when there's danger, but if we're afraid of something that actually isn't dangerous and has the possibility to improve our lives, then I guess it doesn't always need to be listened to. We are speaking with Dr. Annie Zimmerman, the author of Your Pocket Therapist, uh, who operates her therapy out of Hackney in Northeast London and has a new book out. Um, I want to remind everyone that high quality guests like Annie Zimmerman are brought to us by Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics and also uh, psychotherapy. Uh, actually, the, the latest issue has a very important piece on rape and the experience of rape by uh, one of the editors, which we'll be talking about next month. Going to run a short feature on Liberties and then we'll be back with Annie to talk more about Generation Z and therapy. Don't go away, anyone. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. You can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. It's a lot cheaper than going to a therapist, um, although I'm not sh quite sure. How, how much do you charge, uh, Annie, for, uh, for an hour? I might come to you. <laughs> it depends on the person. It's, uh, I have a sliding scale. Well, do you have a, a, a general, I mean, do you have a, an entry cost? Do, do you have a, if, if I was considering, um, I is, it on, is it based on I an hourly yeah, I think right. the standard rate in the UK is about seventy pounds an hour, right now. Well, that's not bad. Go and buy a cup of tea for that anymore, right? <laughs> How has the uh, internet and digital changed everything? You operate your practice out of your 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 home in Hackney, but there's of course a great growth, and for some people, this is quite troubling of online therapy and psychotherapy. Should people be suspicious of that? Do you think? Um, I think people gain something from putting all their thoughts somewhere and, and feeling that it's being listened to. I personally don't um, think it's a substitute for connection. Like therapy is really about connecting with someone and being witnessed and being um, held and um, encouraged and challenged by another person. And I just don't think that's something that can hack a, a human robot interaction in the same way. Um, however, if you can't afford therapy, if you can't sit, and just having some someone on the other end of um, a screen or just a place to put all of your thoughts can also provide something for someone. I'm not sure if I would call it therapy, but um, it can still be helpful. Uh, and that, of course, brings us to the question of AI. Lots of uh, innovation in the AI area. We're talking to Robert Pearl, my old friend, one of America's leading physicians on Monday about how AI will change the medical profession in the in 2024. Have you seen any AI applications for therapy and, and should people be particularly suspicious of those? Um, I think there's, uh, yeah, there's people who are developing like an AI chat service that will <clears throat> learn about you and respond to you and try and empathize with you. Um, I just don't know if you can feel empathized by a robot, you know, if you can feel this person really understands me and they get me, if it's coming from AI, I don't know. Um, but 
I'm, I'm open to it if it works for some people, especially people who aren't leaving their house and uh, feel much more comfortable talking to, to people online. Um, but, but I just don't know if AI, if and AI is a place that's going to go together. I'm sure someone will develop something. Um, just I'm, it might be quite limited. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I mean, certain professions are very vulnerable. No one likes going to their lawyer, even doctors. Uh, certainly fast food workers, many other professions are very vulnerable to AI. But the whole nature of therapy is the human to human connection. So once you replace the therapist with a smart machine or perhaps a not so smart machine, that probably undermines the whole point of therapy, doesn't it? Yeah, I agree with you. So you're still going to be in a job, Annie, for a while anyway. Um, I talked about the Andrew Tate phenomenon on young men. Uh, there was an interesting piece also in The Guardian this morning uh, featuring an interview with Jodie Foster who, who talks about Generation Z, lots of stuff on Generation Z. I'm sure you see a lot of them being really annoying to work with. She said, uh, and I'm quoting Foster, they're really annoying, especially in the workplace. They're like, no, nah, I'm not feeling like, I'm not feeling it today. I'm going to come in at 10.30. Um is there something, and maybe this isn't a therapy question, more just broadly about Gen Z, is there something different about this generation uh, that older people, perhaps like myself, really struggle or, or, or Jodie Foster struggle to understand? Yeah, I think clearly there's something that's being missed. Um, I guess Gen Z are being raised with confidence um, and maybe that confidence can slip into entitlement sometimes but I, I think probably um, that there's there needs to be more conversations between the generations because something is being missed I think Gen Z are really unfairly um, labeled oh you know they just they don't they don't have a work ethic and they just do whatever they like and I think their experience um, is actually that they're they're much more confident challenging authority and asking for a raise and you know setting boundaries and things like that doesn't mean it's um, it works in the current workplace setup that we have, um, but I'm sure it's coming from a place where they feel empowered, which can be a, clearly it's having its clashes with uh, the, the, the other way of working, which is like, you know, fear your boss, don't ask for anything, take on all of the extra work, um, and then prophesy. You brought up the two E words that I inevitably associate with Gen Z and with our perhaps therapeutic culture, you probably hear this this word in your sessions and you probably articulate them, you just mentioned them, entitlement and empowerment. Um, is there a language, not just of therapy, but of Gen Z, where certain words like entitlement have taken on particular significance? These were not words that I ever heard growing up 40 years or 50 years ago. I, I think it the word has quite a negative connotation but what it means is that you feel entitled to good things um which is like an inner confidence but isn't that your shtick isn't that yeah. what therapy is all about that we all have a right to that kind of entitlement yes but um not if it comes with a with no humility and um why what is humility horrible I word annie <laughs> i think word. humility is being mean? It's being aware of other people and being aware that you're not the center of the universe. Um, you are the, you know, this whole thing I like, like about being the main 
important character in your story, I think is, it can be quite dangerous because actually we live in combination with many other people and we have to be aware, you know, if you work, you're working in a team. Um, so you want to be a good team member. Yes, exactly. Your boundaries and absolutely don't, um, you know, ask for things and, and expect good things, but still recognize that you're there in a team and you're there to help other people. So I think entitlement is really positive kind of spills over into a place where you're not thinking about other people and you're always putting it first. I mentioned Weber earlier. Of course, he was one of those German theorists with Nietzsche who talked about the the end of magic, the end of religion, a world of reason. And, and they all wondered, where's morality going to come from? I, I wonder with your language of entitlement and humility, whether... Morality, for better or worse these days, is coming from therapists like you. These kids and perhaps older people come to you. They don't want to be educated uh, in psychotherapy, in, in the academic language of psychotherapy, as you suggested. But they do need a moral education. And in a sense, you are the replacement for the priests of antiquity. Is there any truth to that? therapist or priestesses you're not of course a priest no but i think a therapist is actually not supposed to judge so i would say morality is quite removed from the therapy room but their choices you might be helping them to get in touch with their inner compass of morality which we all have and actually i think we were working to that um i would never say some something is good or bad or wrong or right but well, you brought out the H word, humility. You're telling everyone they need to be humble. Isn't that the core, a, a core moral observation or or, or, or or form of education? Well, I don't, I, I don't think it's a question of morality. It's about being, it's not about something being wrong, right. Um, it's about a way of being in the world that's aware of others, which is maybe something that I ascribe to. Everybody has to, but in in going through therapy and being challenged and questioned, you're really getting a sense of what's wrong and right for you and coming up yourself, which is the most important thing rather than answering to a, a higher priest or priestess, you know. Is your discourse or ideology, whatever you want to call it, is it about morality or is it about self-interest? Are you suggesting that people should be humble because that will enable them to get on in the world? Or are you suggesting that they need to be humble because that's the right way for humans to behave? Interested in people um, less, and if they can find a way to do that um, and be in the world that we live in and get on with other people, um, rather than being self-interested, it's about um, being curious about yourself and how you can suffer less in the world. And I think humility can help with that, not for everyone. It's not a rule, it's not a, um, it's not a moral issue, but I think it can be helpful for people to uh, be more cohesive with others, you know? So as a therapist, then you really are a, a utilitarian. You're trying to maximize the pleasure and particularly minimize the pain of, of the people who come into your office. Yeah, absolutely.